0: (laughs) Let me pray for you guys. God, we pray for a blessing on our children. They are an amazing gift from you. And we pray and ask that as they open up your word, as they interact with their teachers, you give their teachers wisdom to guide them towards you and and towards your truth. May you sow seeds of the gospel deep in their heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, you are dismissed. How's everyone doing today? Good, good, good. Uh, I'm back from a fantastic guys retreat weekend last weekend. It took me about two days to fully recover because Ray kept me up with his snoring. He warned me, he said, I'm a terrible snorer. And I was like, I can take it. I couldn't take it. It was like 3.30 mornings in the morning. It was rough. (laughs) But I got some naps in. It was all good. Kind of redemptive arc to the weekend. Uh, I want to thank all the guys who came out. I know it's a real risk. Um, to schedule out time in a busy month, which October tends to be for a lot of people, to set aside that time and to say, I'm going to risk that this whole weekend is going to be worth going for. And I can say unequivocally that this year it absolutely was. And I'll be the first to say, I'm not a huge conference junkie guy. I'm not like, hey, let's go to like eight, ten conferences a year because they're the mountaintop experiences and they're all that matters. That's not how I live out my faith. But this weekend was, last weekend was incredibly powerful. There was just so many kind of holy ground moments, these moments where everybody in the room knew God was doing something really powerful and the level of candor and courage shown by the guys was just amazing. It's always great to get guys together, singing together, worshiping together, digging into God's word together. And it really felt like it was the start of something bigger at play. And I know a lot of the guys after the weekend said, we want to figure out ways, maybe not to do a whole weekend, but maybe some full days or half days together. So guys in the room, please um, keep your radar up for that. And when when those opportunities come up, please avail yourselves uh, to them because it was such an encouraging weekend and really restorative for me personally. Okay, it's the first Sunday of November, and so what I do on the first Sunday of every month is I kind of reset my own spiritual growth goals. I categorize them through the categories of heart, soul, mind, and strength based off Jesus' great commandment that the most important thing you can do with your life is learning to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I share these with you guys as a way to remind you that um, I think you should be doing the same in your life. The goals are going to look different but we should be trying to cultivate a holistic and dynamic relationship with God and not just seeking to grow with God in the one or two areas that kind of come naturally to us. I think every Christian has a spiritual love language, which, um, which is a beautiful thing. And it's a powerful way that God nourishes that person and, and through which they, they're kind of primarily rooted and sustained in their faith. But like any good relationship, you have to develop it holistically. And so for me, um, this month, because I know... D- Christmas is going to be, December is going to be a little bit crazier. I really want to set aside uh, five times to have a date night with each, Lauren, Kara, Braden, Avery, and Heather this month. I'm going to fast, try to fast four times this month. I really felt convicted after a lot of study in the text this week, as you'll find out, about the importance of fasting. And that's a spiritual discipline that I basically just don't do ever. And I was convicted because in Matthew 5, when Jesus is talking about fasting, he says, when you fast, not if you fast. He's, assume, he's presuming disciples are gonna be people who are fasting and availing themselves of that spiritual discipline. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't do that at all. Hard. I can't remember the last time I fasted. So that's kind of a um, repentant goal for me. Continue my reading plan. I'm also reading Hopeful Imagination by Walter Brueggemann, which is a study of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, which tend to be overall books that I tend to avoid because they're really strange and cryptic. Um, so I'm kind of letting him be my guide through those. And then this Wednesday, Um, our small group, the small group that I'm a part of is doing our serve and we're doing something that's just gonna bless and hopefully bring a lot of encouragement to the high school students in our church and so I'm really looking forward to that. So let that be an encouragement to you to maybe do the same in your own life. Get get away today, 10 minutes, 15 minutes and say, God, where are you calling me to grow and, and to stretch myself in ways that maybe don't come naturally but that are really, really important. Okay, now I am going to ask you guys to do a little bit more work than normal this morning when it comes to the teaching. So, if you have a Bible, it'd be great if you could open up to Luke chapter 4. I am going to be asking and relying on interaction with you guys this morning. This is going to be a little bit more of a back and forth. A lot of you guys are like, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Why are we going into the Gospel of Luke this morning? Oh, that's a very astute question. Let me explain. Today, we are, we are continuing a series through the book of Mark. We're going to be spending a lot of time in Mark for a long time as we look at this theme of insurrection, of overthrow. How does Jesus in the coming of the kingdom and the good news overthrow principalities, powers, forces of evil, forces of darkness, systems and structures that set themselves up against God? And Mark's a great gospel for that. One of the most powerful events in... You know, all of the gospels, is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, or his testing in the wilderness by the devil? Uh, one of the issues, if you're, one of the issues, though, is if you're only relying on Mark, you get a, a sliver of what's actually going on there, right? Mark, Mark only covers the temptation of Jesus in two verses. In Mark 1, verses 12 to 13, it says, "Right after the baptism, which we looked at, at two weeks ago, at once the Spirit sent him Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. That's it. And Mark moves on to the next story. It's only in Matthew and Luke that we get kind of the extended version. And that's really, really important to look at. And that's what I want to look at today. So if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, um, we're going to be moving through this, uh, this account together. Now what I'm going to do, I'm going to read it, and I want you to follow along with me. But as I read it, what I'd like you to do is just take note of one or two things about the text that maybe you never noticed before, or or that just kind of um, kind of move out from two D to three D to you. Sometimes when you're reading the scripture, there might be a word or a line or some dynamic about the text that you're like, I don't think I've ever noticed that before. And I want you, as we're reading it, to just be um, in that posture that says, I want to take notice of this. I don't want to just kind of read it. I've heard this maybe a few times or whatever. To really look at this and let God's word kind of impact you and kind of uh, just be attentive of how God might be causing something to stick out. So I'm going to be reading Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. Probably one of the more gross understatements in the Bible. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all their authority and all their splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple If you were the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. (laughs) And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So here's kind of the, the overall context. Jesus has just been baptized. He's just heard this powerful voice of affirmation and delight from his heavenly Father. And then he's moved, he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And I showed some pictures a few weeks ago of what the wilderness is. It's not really like the wilderness here where it's like wild but lush. There's kind of nothing there. It's it's kind of mountainous, it's rocky, it's dry, it's very inhospitable. It's barren, it's very very harsh. It's isolating. And Jesus commits to 40 days of fasting here. No food, he's alone. And I think the text makes it abundantly clear. The only voice Jesus hears over these 40 days is this voice from this Satan, this enemy, this accuser. There's no more you are my son whom I love and you I am well pleased. That voice seemingly goes silent and a different voice is now speaking over him and to him and trying to get inside his heart. And so I don't think it's much of a stretch to say this is the most difficult 40-day stretch in Jesus' life. I mean, this is a re- we tend to gloss over it sometimes very, very quickly. We have to understand the weight and the significance of what is happening here. And so what I'd like us to do this morning is, I have a a bunch of notes here, but I want to invite you to tell me what you notice about the text. And there's probably going to be three major areas, you don't have to worry about, we're not going to tackle these necessarily in order, but I think the text puts three things in front of us very, very uh, powerfully. The first thing the text wants to do is to show us kind of the strategies of Satan the strategies of the Satan. Remember, this is the first time in Mark's gospel that we're introduced to the devil. This is the first time he shows up on the scene. So this account has a lot to teach us about this Satan and his strategies. Uh, the next category is kind of the nature of the temptations themselves. Why, what is Jesus being tempted to do and to take hold of? And why are they such a big deal? Maybe they aren't a big deal, but they, they must be a big deal, but what, what's going on? And the third area that we'll probably cover at some point is how Jesus resisted that temptation. So what I'd like to do is just throw it open to you in terms of saying, hey, I noticed this, or maybe maybe it's in the form of a comment, might be in the form of a question as well. But what do you notice in this text? What do you notice happening? Mike? Yeah, Yeah. very good. So it's not like 40 days is alone. He's just kind of twiddling his thumb as he's fasting. And then right in the last five minutes, Satan goes into overdrive. This is a time of sustained testing. So again, maybe that helps us to understand how difficult this would have been. I can't handle it when my own little kids are at me for like one or two days, right? And that's only for a little bit of the day. Imagine being, you know, in this face-to-face confrontation with the enemy where he just gets to tempt and accuse you for 40 days and yet you just stay strong the whole time. Staying strong with not sleeping well, not eating well, being physically um, malnourished. So this is, this is a real torturous um window in the gospels this is very very difficult what else do you notice about what's happening here wendy the person in the narrative it struck me the spirit yeah for some reason i just glossed over it i might miss it wandering the desert and i think when i was a child i somehow thought satan like in the desert i'm not sure why i think that would be the presumption uh, for those listening on the podcast wendy's comment was that um that she noticed that it was a spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness. And again, the the point there being is that this wasn't accidental. This was part of what Jesus had to do. This is is a a showdown between him and the devil that he had to have. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't like Jesus and the devil just happened to be in the same room at the same time. It's like, ooh, awkward. Let's just talk about this. This was a divinely appointed uh, moment in Jesus's life. And it's a very, very, very significant moment. What else do you see happening there? Yep, yeah, Grace? Well, I guess the thing that really hit me was the very last verse. When the devil had finished yeah. this temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Yeah. And so often I think when I've read this, I've thought, okay, well, he had these temptations and it's over. But it's not over. Right. Very good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, the last verse, devil had finished all his tempting. He left him until an opportune time. That, that was one of the ones that stuck out to me too. I underlined it because I was like, I don't think I ever took notice of that. And that's really significant for us, right? Because sometimes we can think um, that, well, it, it's just good to be aware that number one, Satan's not tempting us all the time. He's, he's smarter than that. He will come at us, look for a weak point, and even if we do succeed in that moment of resisting, he'll say, that's fine. I'm just going to go into the shadows a little bit, and I'm going to wait for an opportune time. I'm going to wait until you're weak. I'm going to wait until you're hungry. I'm going to wait until you're thirsty for this or for that. I'm going to wait until you feel isolated and alone. I'm going to wait. abide my time. I'm patient. i got all the time in the world. I'm just going to wait. And that's so interesting, right? Because sometimes we think of Satan as like the Halloween monster, like jumping out and trying to get us. But you see in this text, he's so much more subtle than that. And whenever you see Satan working in scripture, he's so subtle. Genesis 3 says, you know, the serpent was more cunning than all the other creatures the Lord God had made. And, And the word cunning there is sometimes translated subtle or devious. But this idea that what, you know, part of the strategy that we see of Satan is not this obvious, kind of frontal assault of, of, uh, of um, monstrous temptation. It's just this subtle, he's very patient, he's very intelligent, he understands us enough that he'll, he'll wait and he'll wait for the moment where we're most susceptible to whatever that root sin in our own heart is and then he introduces something, right? Really, really powerful. Satan is not constantly tempting us he doesn't need to. He'll leave, wait for an opportune time, and then come in. What else do you notice about what's, hap- what's happening? The word temptation implies the human nature of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. This is so important to understand. This is one of the reasons why Jesus has to do this. You can't be the savior of humanity if you're inhuman. You can't be a human sacri- You can't be a sacrifice that makes um, atonement for human sin if you are not a human. And if Jesus is not tempted, and if somehow, this is terrible terrible theological language, but if Jesus has kind of like this uh, God force field around him that makes him impervious to even being tempted, he can't actually step into our humanness. This is what Hebrews 4 is all about. It says, this is why Jesus is so amazing. He's not like a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. He's a high priest who's been tempted in every way like us, but without sin. And that's really encouraging on two fronts. Number one, it's encouraging because it's not a sin sin to be tempted. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give in to temptation. But when you find yourself being tempted, that's not a sin to be tempted. And number two, this should drastically change how we respond in times of temptation and in times of hardship with Jesus because Jesus knows on a level that is... Uh, much more challenging than probably we will ever know. He has faced a greater temptation. And there's no temptation that has whispered to our hearts that Jesus would say, oh yeah, totally. I, I have no frame of reference for that, so I can't really help you, like all the best. Our high priest is one who we can come to with boldness because he's been tempted in every way yet without sin. And that's why he has such great compassion for us and wants to sustain and help us in times of weakness. What else do you notice about the text? He was led by the spirit into the wilderness but also in the wilderness the spirit did lead. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Absolutely. So but but here but here's a, that's a great insight Dennis. And here's something so important I think in that though. Um often when we are in wilderness seasons it feels like God isn't with us. Right in times of tempting, times of testing, times of trial. We know that God's with us, but it doesn't feel like God is with us. And this is a text where it's really important for us to remember, no, like God is still walking with me. He's got, God is still sustaining me. But there might be seasons in my life, and that might be 40 days. They could be 40 months. They could be 40 minutes. But there's gonna be times where maybe God's presence won't be obvious to me, but that doesn't mean that God's presence isn't there. And I think that needs to be a huge encouragement because sometimes when we face temptation and we face hardships, one of the things that can go through your head is, well, I guess God's abandoned me because if God was with me, I wouldn't be facing this. Or if God was with me, I'd be kind of, feel, I'd, just, I'd just be on top of the world. But it says here Jesus was hungry. The presence and the, the Spirit's presence and God's presence with Jesus didn't remove any of the anguish and the pain and the hardship Great great insight there. Any anyone notice anything about the strategies that the devil uses? What what does how does how does Satan tempt Jesus? What does he do? I that um, in two of the, races, it says the devil to and the devil, to to the Yep. Yeah, that yeah, we'll talk about that uh probably near the end, but that that's an interesting observation. Anyone else notice anything about how Satan actually attempts, right? Yeah. Yep, really interesting. Satan doesn't have a massive toolbox. He doesn't really need one because there's really only certain categories of temptations. They're broad, so the specificity relates to us in our individual walks with God and in life. But there are three things at the start of the book of Mark that we know about Jesus during this time of tempting. He's starving. He has a genuine, legitimate human need for satisfaction and satiation on the physical level. He's unknown. At this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus isn't very popular. He's not famous. You don't, there's no crowds following Jesus yet. No one even recognizes really beyond John and maybe his disciples and a few other people that he's the son of God. Very, very, r- relatively unknown. He, he's, he's not on anyone's kind of like, you know, top 30 under 30 to watch in Galilee thing. Like there's no, he's not there yet. And the third thing is that he's economically Socially and politically impoverished. He doesn't have a huge network around him. And it's interesting to me that on all of those levels, the desire for provision and satisfaction, the desire for power, and the desire to be made known, to be lifted up, are the three temptations that Satan puts before Jesus. You have this need, Jesus. Everyone does. So just do this and have, meet that need. You, you can meet the need, Jesus. Like If anyone can meet their own need, you actually can. So just do it. Is not Great question from Kevin. Kevin says, I get the, the, the last two temptations. I can see why, why they're an issue. What's the deal with the first one turning a stone into bread? Why is that a sin? To answer that, it might be helpful to jump to how does Jesus refute or resist all three temptations? He quotes scripture. Which scriptures does he quote? Satan quotes the scripture too. But where does Jesus quote his scripture from? The Torah, Deuteronomy, chapter six, I think 614, and there's three of them. And the other one comes at the end of Deuteronomy. They're all from Deuteronomy's chapter six to eight. Does anyone know what's happening in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to 8? Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law before God's people are about to go into the promised land. It's kind of a um, remind God, God through Moses, reminding his people, this is the Torah, this is how I want you to live. And verses 6, 7, and 8, sorry, chapter 6, 7, and 8 deal specifically with what time in Israel's journey? Does anyone know? 40 years of wandering in the desert. And God says, in Deuteronomy, oh, I've got it somewhere. Here's here's where all my notes get um, thrown around. In Deuteronomy 8, God says, I brought you out into the wilderness to test you and to see what was in your heart, that you would know me, that you would know my love, and that you would understand that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So why is the first sin to turn stones into bread sinful? Because what is Jesus doing? By going, remember what we said about the baptism. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Does he have to repent of sin? No. But he is standing in the place of Israel and saying, where God's people failed, I will succeed. So he is, goes through the Red Sea, crosses the water of baptism. and Now he goes into the desert. And Israel for 40 years grumbled against God. They resisted God. They pushed back against God, and God had to let that generation die so that a new generation who was going to be obedient to God could come forward. And what Jesus is doing, by going into the desert, he's saying again, I'm going to succeed where God's people failed. I'm going to go into the desert, and even though I have the ability to meet my own needs, I'm going to trust God And I'm going to trust God when he says that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm ultimately not looking to my own power to meet my own needs. I'm going to rely on God. Israel didn't rely on God. I'm going to rely on God. And all of these temptations that Jesus faces are temptations that Israel faced in the wilderness. And at every turn, Jesus is showing us what a true Israelite is going to look like, what a true human being is going to look like, what a truly righteous person who's trusting in God but it's to see we tend to miss it because we're not steeped in the symbolism of the Old Testament but 40 days in the desert, 40 years in the wilderness where they were hungry and it was inhospitable and it was tough and the record that we read for the Israelites is time and again they grumbled Let's go back to Egypt, because at least there we can get food. This is dumb. Moses, did you bring us over here to die? We don't see Jesus doing any of that. He perfectly obeys. So that's why I think there's the sin there of Jesus saying, I'm not going to provide for myself, even though I can. I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to try and take things under my own power, even though I have access to it, enforce God's hand. I'm going to trust God. Where do we take all this for some of us today? Let me, let me throw out a few reflections that I think are, are really, really important. One thing that I'd want us all to recognize about the nature of all three temptations is that Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut some, to something God is going to give Jesus, but just not yet. God is going to provide bread for Jesus God is going to exalt and lift up Jesus in such a way that people say he is the son of God. Truly, this man is the son of God. Um, All the temptations here are temptations of shortcuts. And I remember when I kind of realized that in my early 20s, I began to realize, oh, that's that's a really helpful way of understanding maybe not every sin, but a lot of sin. If you think about it, a lot of sin is trying to take hold of what God wants to give us, but just doing it through a shortcut. Why is it it sinful to have sex outside of a covenantal marriage commitment? It's not because sex is sinful, but it's sinful because you're trying to take hold of physical satisfaction. You're trying to um, cultivate, you want to have intimacy in one dimension of your life, but I don't want to have to actually do the work of cultivating whole-life covenantal relationship with the person, I want a shortcut. I want to meet my needs, but I just want to do it in a way that isn't a lot of work. You know, stealing. Why, why is theft a sin? You're literally saying I don't want to have to work for my prosperity, but I want wealth. So I'll just take what I want. And I think that's so important for us to recognize. I think we live in a a culture that is so enamored with shortcuts. Um, We want to be wise without having to suffer. We want to be joyful without having to be generous. We want to be victorious without having to persevere. We want to gain pleasure and satisfaction without any kind of constraint. We want spiritual vibrancy without any intentionality. And we want prosperity without sacrifice. And one of the things that I would put in front of you pastorally in your own life is when temptation comes, recognize that you're not being tempted actually by a bad thing. Food for when you're hungry isn't bad. Having people, um, protection for Jesus isn't bad. Very few of our temptations are to bad things. They're to good things at the wrong time or in the wrong way. And that's really important because we often think and presume Satan is trying to give us the out out from under God's oppression. God wants to hold you down. God wants to keep things from you. And yet, and Satan's saying, listen, I just got an easier way. It's a faster way. And God is saying, oh, don't listen to Satan's way because you're not gonna actually get it. If you trust me and are willing to say no in the moment, I'll give you what you want, but I I can't, the reason why you don't have what I want to give you right now is because it will destroy you if you get it. So I'm protecting you from this right now because you think you're ready for it, you think you want it, you think you can handle it, you think it will help you, it will not. You need, you need to trust me and not just say, well, I have the power to make my own bread, I'll take it. That's always our temptation is to look for shortcuts. And the last thing I want to close on, and this is really important, I think Christians fundamentally misread this entire account I think it's tempting for us to think, okay, what's the major, major lesson of this whole thing? Satan's real. He can tempt us. And and I guess, like Jesus, if we hide God's word in our heart and if we're committed to scripture and we're committed to God, we can refute the devil and we can avoid temptation and we can live victorious Christian lives because this is what Jesus did. If we follow in his pattern, we can do it too. There's a really big problem with that way of understanding the scripture. And that is this. The point is not that Jesus was tempted. Look how he overcame it. You could overcome it too. That would be like spiritual self-help. The point of this text is because you couldn't stand toe-to-toe with the devil for 40 minutes, for 40 seconds, let alone 40 days, Jesus did it on your behalf. You don't read the story of the crucifixion and say, oh, Jesus is my example. If I allow myself to be crucified, then I'll get resurrected. I'll be saved. No, it's not a process of self-salvation. It's because you were lost, because you couldn't save yourself, Jesus had to die. So what are we seeing happening in, in the wilderness? Jesus is stepping in to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. None of you are ever going to have to face down Satan face-to-face and to hear his um, brilliant, specific, slanderous, tempting, accusatory, um, accusatory voice in the same way that Jesus did because he did it on your behalf. He stepped in. We're getting a foreshadowing of the cross here where Jesus allowed himself to be pummeled out in the wilderness for 40 days, not just, for, not just a little bit at the end. For 40 days he takes it upon himself, yet without sin. See, if you see Jesus as just a good example, this, uh, I think this passage will actually discourage you. Well, Jesus resisted temptation. I'm trying, I'm not. I guess I'm brutal. I guess I'm an unworthy Christian. I guess I don't have what it takes. That's not the point of the passage at all. If you understand the passage in a gospel-centered, Christ-centered, not, you, not centered on you, this passage isn't about what you need to do, it's about what Jesus did. And Jesus put himself in your position. And Jesus faced your accuser. And Jesus faced the one who was the ultimate tempter. But he was victorious on your behalf. And so now in him, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you can walk in intimacy with Jesus which will help you in times of temptation. Is it good to know the Bible and to resist the devil? Of course it is. The Bible tells us to do that. But don't read this text primarily as, this is what you can do in your own willpower to overcome Satan and his temptation. This is about what Jesus has done. And that's why in the book of Hebrews, there's that great, great verse that I alluded to earlier. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16 Implication there is in our time of temptation. Let's pray. God, as Mark is putting your story before us, um, and as it's fleshed out by this scripture in Luke's gospel today, I hope we're challenged to see that this isn't about learning spiritual tips and tricks. This is about learning about a king who has come to do for his people what they couldn't do for themselves. And as we think through and process the ramifications of that within our small groups this week and conversations, may it give us a greater confidence that our hope in overcoming temptation doesn't lie in our own willpower and ourselves. It's being rooted and grounded in you and to have access to an entirely new power to a new way of looking at the world and a new way of, of engaging the world. We love you, God. Continue to lead us into your truth and empower us to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.